Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew in Matthew chapter 26, reading verses 6 to 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Unrequited uh, love is a very uh, difficult thing. Probably uh, beyond the difficulty of uh, one who sees the love uh, unreturned is it's also an indication something's terribly wrong in a relationship, in any relationship. Unrequited love, again, a difficult thing. It's a cute little story of a little girl who goes running to her grandmother with a doll in each uh, hand crying, I love them, grandmother, I love them, I love them so much, but they don't love me back. It's tough not to get loved back. For us, of course, Jesus is the great lover of our souls. And we love him back because requited love is the essence of our valuation of the gospel. It's something that hangs over us every time we hear the gospel. Reminder of the greatness of forgiveness because we were great sinners. Of the majesty that God, the gift of the incarnation, would come and love us in an infinite love and an infinite perfection in an infinite person. It's a love, of course, that is returned as we love Him back. The account this morning uh, in the Gospel of John is uh, just prior to the triumphal entry. Mark and Matthew changed the chronology. Uh, It might be important for you to realize that the writers of scriptures do not write like we do in the 21st century. We are very given to chronology and timelines. They are writing theologically, uh, and there's not the literary convention to write strict timetables. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, it's an event that begins the passion culminating in the crucifixion. It's in Bethany, the home of Simon the leper. I love love that name, Simon the leper. Uh, You know, you might... uh, have an event of hospitality in your home, and we're going to Phil Bowersock's house, the center. Yes, true, true statement, would it not? 
Simon the leper. Uh, we know he's being healed because of the nature of leprosy, but a reminder of his past. Great act of hospitality, he's celebrating the cure. What a great reminder for all of us, never, never, ever to forget the cure. Sin has been cured through Jesus Christ. What to never forget our past. But it's a past that ought not to haunt us because of uh, the eternality of our forgiveness. It, it may very well also be a celebration of the resurrection of Lazarus. We ought to celebrate key events in our lives, our coming to faith, if you can perhaps uh, put a date on that. I don't know that I really can, but nonetheless, the majesty of the events surrounding it and the driving forces and passions, we ought to celebrate those things perpetually as a measure of uh, loving back. Because nothing is so great as being forgiven. Perhaps Mary purchased the nard to prepare for her brother's burial. Now that he's been raised from the dead, what does she do with it? Well, she has something to do with it, to be sure. Uh, Mary's anointing Jesus as an act of love for what he did, perhaps, in raising her brother. But more importantly, uh, it's an act of love for the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross and the great drama of redemption. We have a way of losing that in our culture, the great drama of redemption. We're in football season. What do we think of? Did your team win yesterday? We're driven by these things, but the greatest event of all time is our redemption, the drama of our redemption and all that it means. Ought to be a specter that hangs over us, always reminding us the gift of God in Jesus Christ, His sacrificial love. And of course, the question is, there are Requited love or requited love. Mary's going to teach us about the latter, giving back in light of what was given to her. As I suggested earlier, Mark and Matthew changed their chronology and placed the event here juxtaposed to the evil of the temple mafia and the perfidy of Judas. That's why I think they place it in speculation on my part. But there's something about contrast that you and I ought to struggle with. The contrast of what we were before our redemption. The contrast, and there ought to be contrast of what we are because we are no longer the men and women that we used to be. And there ought to be a contrast in light of understanding the love of God in Jesus Christ and the gospel. It is a reminder, I think, that uh, simply two types of men in the world. I know in our culture there's this orientation and this provenance and on and on. We divide everything up 10,000 ways. But there are really just two types of men in the world. Those who hate Jesus, the temple mafia, Judas, others, and those who love him, like Mary. And in all your thoughts about unity, 
and about plurality. It's good to remember the scriptures, particularly here with uh, Matthew and Mark changing the chronology to juxtapose this incredible act of sacrifice on behalf of Mary uh, to the perfidy of Judas and the incredible act of sacrifice in the drama of our redemption. Well, loving back, of course, is costly but necessary. Essential element of our faith is loving God in light of His love for us. The nard was a perfume from India used to anoint the dead with the approximate value of the annual wage of a laborer. She pours it on his head. John says, and adds, uh, also poured on his feet. And she wiped her feet with, she wiped his feet with her hair. In her day, a woman's glory was in her hair. So that she is giving a measure of what was costly to her and her personal glory to Christ. It's a quintessential act, is it not? We take what is important to us and we give it to the Lord. That she is at His feet is a sign of worship as an acknowledgement of His preeminence. That Christ is preeminent and ought to be so held in our lives. I contend that perpetual worship is part of sacrificially loving Jesus back, expressing the infinite value of His love for us. We have a way in our culture of belittling everything, of being in a hurry about everything. But again, the drama of redemption is not something to belittle or be in a hurry about. And we ought never to forget it. It's something, the abiding lesson of the event before us. You simply do not understand the gospel if the love of Jesus is unrequited. Now, I know that that's a broad statement. Well, but, you know, I mean, I go to church, I hear the lecture, I take the test. I'm on the rolls. What else do you want me to do? Well, Mary was a member of the church. She, her name was on the rolls, but she's doing something special in light of the special person, the eternality and infinite love of Christ before her. This is really on display in a parallel event. It's not the same event. It's a parallel event in the Gospel of Luke. You have your New Testaments, I trust you do, Luke chapter 7. A Pharisee is hosting a dinner for Jesus. Sometimes uh, events like this were public and people could come in and observe and see who was there and exactly what happened. A prostitute comes in the door and she's there for a specific reason. She has business to attend to important business to attend to. Luke chapter 7, the 38th verse. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She understood who she was. I would commend to you the reality we ought to understand from whence we came. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
The Pharisee has the fleeting thought that, well, Jesus must, he must not really be God because if he knew who this woman was, he would have rebuked her. He would have spurned her sacrifice if he had really known that a prostitute. But again, that's the essence of the gospel. So, I mean, I don't know what your name was, Simon the leper, Mary the prostitute, or the thief, or the reviler, or the profane person. Again, there's something sticks. I don't know what it is. Something about the haunting nature of our past that comes to value the gospel all the more. That's what's driving this woman. She comes to seek forgiveness. Uh, so Jesus, he knows what the Pharisee is thinking because he knows all things. He, he tells the Pharisee, you made no provision to wash my feet, to kiss me or anoint me with oil. 47th verse. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little then Jesus forgives her of her sin. That's why we need to understand what our name was, Simon the leper, Mary the prostitute. I mean, I don't know what it is that haunted you. I simply know that uh, in your genealogy, Adam was your first father, and the guilt of his sin was charged to your account, and uh, you went willy-nilly into that way and loved it, uh, and you were dead, of course, in that, and you had all types of idols in your life, whatever they might have been, football or whatever, a job, a person. And then God saved you by His grace, changed your name. And you've come to realize that uh, you need to love much because you were forgiven much. This prostitute understood that reality. Uh, she was in need of great love for she was a great sinner. And she loved commensurately in return in her sacrificial worship. You and I are great sinners. And while we cannot match our Lord's love in quantity and quality, we of necessity love back in light of our estimation of the value that's been given to us in forgiveness. I mean, I would tell you that forgiveness of sin is the greatest possession of all time. There can be nothing greater than to be forgiven before God, an eternally righteous God a God of absolute justice and holiness, but to own forgiveness because of the sacrificial love of Christ. And it is a possession that's so great, it's transformative. It causes us to love back as Mary loves back, as the prostitute loves back. There's something of an illustration of this in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, David, the king of Israel, sins. The prophet tells him that God's going to bring immediate uh, judgment uh, for his sin. Gives him three options. Reminded that there's consequences. David chooses the consequence that he desires to choose. He chooses a plague for three days. 
It stops at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Second uh, Samuel 24, the 18th verse. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David goes up, as the Lord had commanded him through the prophet, comes to, uh, to offer a, a sacrifice to stop the plague. By the way, it's a marvelous reminder. Sometimes in our life we think little of sin, but, I mean, how can you think little of it? It offends an infinite God, but more than that, it's like a disease. It begins to touch everything. We have a way of thinking, oh, it'll be confined. Nothing's confined. That's one of the lessons of this text. It breaks out upon uh, the entire nation. Uh, thousands upon thousands died in this plague. We thought, oh, well, that's no big, well, sin's no big deal. Uh, NBD, who cares? Well, God cares, and... Uh, the nation's being judged for the sin of, of uh, David. Well, David, again, in response to the prophet, goes up and buys the land. Something unique happens. Uh, Jebusite says, look, I'm going to give it to you for free. And not only am I going to give you the land for free, you can have my oxen as the burnt sacrifice, and you can take the wood uh, of the plows and use it to burn to offer the sacrifice. Now, if you think about it, that's a great deal. <laughs> I mean, hey, that's great. It doesn't cost me anything. That's one of the problems in our culture as Christians. Uh, make it cheap, uh, Pastor. Make it, make it so cheap that I can take it if I want it. <laughs> I mean, that's what we think, I think. It's just, uh, you know, it's a famous German theologian coined the phrase cheap grace. I don't have to give anything back. I'm not forgiven forever. Why should I give anything? Why should I serve? Why should I uh, reach into my cabinet and get my nard out? Why should I fall before his feet? It's cheap, isn't it? David refuses the gift as he should have refused it. God spared him in Jerusalem. He was under great guilt. So let's read. Verses 24 and 25, but the king replied to Arauna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. It's a great reminder of loving Christ back and that it is costly. Love is a costly thing. I mean, I understand in our culture we have ballads about love, poems about love, and it's all this, uh, you know, mushy, uh, subjective thought and feeling, but, you know, there's a measure that's true, uh, but it is costly. Love is a costly thing. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not taken into account. Love costs you. Don't ever fall in love with someone thinking it won't cost you anything, because it will. Uh, we have a way in our cultures. There is no cost. There's a cost. I'm out of here. That is what David is teaching us. That is what Mary and the prostitute are teaching us. Love is costly. In light of the object of love in Jesus Christ and the actions of love in the death of our Redeemer. Sacrifice is costly but necessary and loving back is too. It's interesting to me that 
placement of this event in the Gospel of Matthew that follows, as you know, the Olivet Discourse. What is the Olivet Discourse? How to prepare for the coming of the Lord. This event tells you how. Love back. Not just in a one-time event, but in a perpetual event. Understanding that love is costly, loving back. A necessary component in loving back is the significance of the person of Christ. I mean, as you know, the word Messiah means anointed one. That is what uh, the prostitute and Mary are doing, anointing Christ. In Mary's case, uh, preparing him for burial. Prostitute's case, uh, seeking forgiveness. Mary, therefore, is acknowledging his identity. Very interesting to me, uh, certainly in the culture in the days of Jesus, it was a, it's a, man, it's a man's culture. I mean, uh, so what about the men? The disciples miss it, don't they? <laughs> a woman gets it. Sometimes women get it. And the disciples utterly miss it. She's teaching us how to live. They're over there arguing about, well, they should have given this money to poor. I mean, come on. What's the deal here? She understands that a significant event is occurring and about to occur in the life of our Savior. Uh, obviously, it's never to be reduplicated because He only comes once and He dies once. He renders uh, a sacrifice one time. And in our economy, it only takes one time. She's acknowledging that. But in our case, it ought to be a perpetual loving back in light of uh, looking back at the cross and looking back at the coming of the Spirit and grasping the re supreme reality that every day is a day in which we receive the grace of God. I mean, I understand. I'm just like you. I take it for granted. I drove to work and I got home safely. Am I owed that? I don't think so. God in His grace watching over. Food just shows up. No, the grace of God. Give us this day our daily bread, divine provision. That even in difficult times, hard times, soul-searching times, the engine of the grace of God present, alive, Sustaining, keeping, promising. Because God never forsakes us. I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Abandonment and love simply don't go together. They don't in God's lexicon to us. It's true, we, we live in a fallen world and so bad things happen to us because of the world that we live in. But nonetheless, as believers, God preserves, protects, keeps, owns, never withdraws. I think we ought to celebrate that all the time in loving back and being thankful. The disciples missed the person and the time. At this junction in redemptive history, Jesus was more worthy than the poor. And so the eternal that she understood overwhelms the temporal that they didn't quite understand. 
In that sense, Mary's a remarkable uh, person. Uh, something of a conceptually parallel event uh, in, in Luke uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 40 and 42. You know the story. Mary, Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, two sisters. And uh, Martha goes back to engage in preparing for hospitality, a meal. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus hearing his teaching. So Martha gets steamed. Back here, boiling the potatoes, mashing the potatoes. I mean, what's the deal? Where's my sister helping me? I mean, come on, Lord. Uh, tell my sister to do what's right. Come back in here and uh, help me with this and that. Mary sits at his feet. And so, again, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 40. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I mean, it's, it's a great story. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. It happens to us all the time, doesn't it? I'm out here mowing the yard, sweating. Where's my teenage son? Or I mean, whatever the case might be. But the importance, the abiding importance to hear the word of the Lord that begins to trump everything temporal. The, the ability for Mary to grasp what is significant prime essentials of life. We have taught our children to think that the prime essential is every six months to get a new phone, get a new app, get this, get that. In the getting of all these things, we become like Martha. We get steamed when we can't have the newest app. Whatever Mary is teaching us, the prime essential of understanding that which is significant in life, I understand we have to do all types of things in life. We have to have our daily bread and find employment, get jobs. But really, if you think about it, the greatest of all the essentials is one, to hear the word of the Lord. Mary understood that. She teaches the disciples and her own sister that she grasps the priorities. And that's why the temporal suspension of helping the poor is overridden by the abiding necessity of honoring the eternal. I would submit to you, Mary could only do that once because there's only one sacrifice. But you and I ought to learn to do it every day because the benefits that accrue to us on the cross accrue to us every single day. There is not a day in which you will live your life in which you do not desperately need the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. And that is one of the abiding benefits of the cross that follow us each and every day. Mary.
Mary understood that. We ought to as well and love back. I am affirming that loving back is a measure of value. Mary got it. The disciples didn't. You and I, of course, are not exempt from the horizontal love of loving our brother, of course, but it's derivative of the vertical. John tells us in his first epistle, that, you know, love, love your neighbor. Verse 11, 1 John 4, and then verse 19. Uh, we love because he loved us first. We love back because we're loved. And she, Mary, honors our Lord's redemptive service and we, we serve, we serve in costly sacrifice to honor his resurrected life perpetually. She did it once because there's only one honoring preparing the Lord for burial. But you and I serve perpetually in light of the resurrection Christ. And there's a picture of that, as you know, in Revelation chapter 1. John catches a glimpse of the glory of the resurrected Christ and falls immediately upon his face in worship. How could you do otherwise? How can we do otherwise? That we, we love back in sacrificial service. It's costly service uh, because of what has occurred to us. Who it is that we serve? And by the way, in church, who is perpetually present before us? Loving back, an essential element, serving. When I say loving back, I mean it is sacrificial service. If you recall the sermon, all of that discourse, part of, of preparing for the coming of the Lord is using our talents and our gifts for the glory of the Lord. Mary shows us in a picture how we do that. We love back sacrificially not in light of the incarnate Christ going to the cross, but in light of the resurrected Christ and all that that means to us. And so, such love, by the way, is honored by our Savior, is it not? Um, part of the perseverance of the saints, we love back, we sacrificially uh, serve Him perpetually, and our Lord honors us. Uh, the Lord honors Mary's love as a perpetual reminder of the importance of her loving back. Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 10 to 13. Uh, our Lord rebukes the disciples. They missed, they flunked the test, really. Uh, get an F in the course in light of the time. Our Lord is two days away from the cross. Significant time. She understood it, they didn't. Uh, Matthew 26, uh, verses 10 to 13. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I'll tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's fitting that our Lord knew their bickering. I'm always reminded of that in my own life when I begin to complain. He corrects them. He gives an explanation first. She has done, the New American Standard reads, she has done a beautiful thing for me. The Greek text is literally, she has worked a good work. 
New American Standard, of course, translates the figure, but there's something about the literal rendering. She has worked a good work. Captures for me that we, in light of the work that was done for us on Calvary, all the benefits that accrue to us and follow us each and every day of our lives and will throughout all eternity, we work a good work in light of the work done for us. It's a reminder that Jesus' love for us is never unrequited in that sense. It's not the cause of our salvation, but an estimation of the value we give for the forgiveness received. Sometimes we need to study our theologies and go back and understand the majesty of the forgiveness received. I would tell you that in a couple of days, Christ is going to die on that cross for all of our sins. At that point in time, all of our sins were future. He died and paid for them all. I understand that a lot of American churches don't believe that, but I do. I also believe it's transformative. It causes us, because of the sheer majesty of the weight of what forgiveness means, we, we love back. And even when we sin, we don't fall out of redemption, but we are confronted with the need of confession and repentance. Constantly reminded of what that word means. Oh, to be forgiven forever. It does cause us to do a good work in light of the work done for us. Second, Mary is honored for understanding the significance of preparing Jesus for burial. Her extravagant devotion was befitting the nature of the vicarious sacrifice of the Savior for her. The one was costly, but the other of infinite value, given the infinite dignity of Jesus. Her costly was, her, her sacrifice was costly. I mean, think of it. She gave the entire annual wage of a laborer in a one-time event. Costly sacrifice that Mary renders. The sacrifice of Jesus was total. He withheld nothing. Understand the totality of his sacrifice upon the cross for you. Your love for the Savior cannot be unrequited. It gives back. Well, you didn't really understand in the first place what was given. Hers was temporal, his eternal. Nevertheless, she gives back in light of what was given to her. And therefore, Jesus makes her work a memorial. What do we do in our culture? We plant a tree. We build a statue. Uh, we, we establish a committee who uh, votes to bring some sculptured work in. People perpetually remember. Jesus does something that's incredible. He does none of those things. He simply announces by divine fiat as the God of heaven that there will be a perpetual remembrance of the work of Mary. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. The gospel and Mary's work of gratitude for what she received have a timeless succession. The fulfillment of that is not specified for me, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, you read the text and you're reminded Mary preparing Jesus for the greatest of all sacrifices. Simply reminded the two go together. It's the sacrifice of Christ 
in the sacrifice of Mary. Well, let me state it another way. The sacrifice of Christ for you and your sacrificial love for Him and doing good works. Perpetual memorial of Mary in our estimation. Her, hers, of course, was for the incarnation and the cross. Ours, of course, uh, for the resurrected Christ and all that that means to us as sinners. That Mary is celebrated as a disciple and her sacrifice honored and remembered. Uh, one of my favorite commentators, Hendrickson, has written, the memory of Mary's noble act must be kept alive. The Master will not allow it to be forgotten. In light of what He's going to do, what she has done, perpetually memorialized by our Savior. I would simply tell you that the lesson is requited love, emulate Mary. Not in terms of the sacrifice upon the cross, but in light of the resurrected Christ. He defeated it for you. Therefore, serve Him with your gifts, your talents, your time, and anything else that is of value to you to return value to Him in light of the eternal value that accrues to you. So, Mary teaches us the perpetual lesson to love back in light of the reality that we are beloved of God forever. Forever. It's remarkable to me that in our culture, uh, most American churches uh, do not believe that because you can fall in and out of the love of God. What? Really? Jesus can love me, love me once, but never perpetually. I will tell you that that is a misunderstanding of the love of God in Jesus Christ. He loved us when? Eternity past, he set his love upon you. Before you were even born, before you ever exited the womb of your mother, his love was upon you. There never was a time in all of eternity and throughout all of eternity, the love of Jesus hasn't been stamped upon your soul, wrapped upon your soul. How can you not love back? You understand, but a modicum of that, the desire to serve, the desire to return, the desire to perpetuate something of the memorial of Mary, loved eternally, never forgotten. How could Christ love you upon the cross only to see you slip away? It's a very popular theology, but it's not mine. What we need in our culture is... Uh, Revival of understanding the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is what will revive the church. We have simply devolved into a place to go hear a lecture. Uh, as long as the golf tournament's not on. I mean, I understand there are things that intervene in our lives, but nonetheless, the perpetual memorial in light of a modicum of the understanding of an eternal love that ran us to ground, hunted us, tracked us, put its crosshairs upon our heart and pulled the trigger in an eternal vent, never ever to dissipate, 
never ever to recede like the tide, always running us to ground, preparing us for eternal glory. A love from eternity past, spanning the eternities from before the foundation of the world into an unending future of perpetual joy, love, world without end. And so, in our own church, find ways to love back in light of the love of Christ to each of us who profess Him to be our Savior upon the cross. It is sacrificial, it is costly, but it is the joy of the knowledge of what it means to be forgiven forever. Now let it be known in our own halls, buildings, rooms, that we so value and esteem the eternal love of Jesus Christ that we love back. May God bless us in the joy of such love.